0: listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a
1: site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists,
0: and historians about how they bring the past alive. And
1: today we're talking with Dr. Shara Bailey, a paleoanthropologist who studies human evolution by focusing on dental morphology, which is a fancy way of saying the shape of the bumps and grooves on teeth found in humans and the fossil relatives of humans, including Neanderthals, Denisovans, and other species such as the hobbit and new fossils from South Africa. We're talking to Shara today by Zoom from her home in New Jersey. So welcome, Shara. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Well, so excited to have you. And I just want to say a few things um, before we introduce your bio. First, Char and I have been friends since we were graduate students together at Arizona State University back in the 1990s, and I have (laughs) seen her build an amazing career, and we're so excited to have her with us today. And the other thing I want to say to preface today's show is that the field of human evolution is incredibly dynamic. So I have to teach a segment on human evolution here at MSU in my archaeology courses, And literally every semester that I teach, I have to update my syllabus with the new and fascinating cutting-edge research, whether it's a new fossil that's being discovered, insights from genetics, or studies such as those that Shara does, in which detailed morphological analysis reveals to us different connections or divergences among fossil species, and ultimately just gives us more insight into the evolution of human species. So I'm excited to hear what's going on (laughs) most recently with Shara's research. So I'm going to start with her bio. Dr. Bailey is a professor and associate chair in the Department of Anthropology at NYU. She's also an associated research scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. She has served as director of undergraduate studies and the director of women in science program in NYU's College of Arts and Sciences. She's also on the editorial board of the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, Current Anthropology, and the Journal of Paleolithic Archaeology. Bailey's research focuses on using teeth to answer questions about human evolution, and she has extensively researched Neanderthals and modern human origins, including the earliest modern humans from Europe and Africa. Shara has collected human dental morphological and metrical data from around the world, including North and South America, Europe, China, Indonesia, and Africa. She has studied the hobbit, known as um, Homo floresiensis, and dental remains. Uh, She has studied the Homo floresiensis fossil, also known as the hobbit, the remains um, most recently of the new species Homo naledi. So Shara's recent work comprises the systematic and comparative study of baby teeth and the integration of the upper and lower dentition, and Shara, you're often called upon to diagnose and interpret new hominin finds, such as the recently discovered Denisovan mandible from China. Shara has published more than 50 peer-reviewed articles and co-edited a volume on dental perspectives on human evolution. And her work has been featured not just in technical journals, but in more publicly accessible formats, National Public Radio, on the History Channel, National Geographic, and PBS Nova. Shara has also been featured on several podcasts, including Origin Stories by the Leakey Foundation, The Archaeology Show, which is on the ARC Podcast Network, and People Behind Science Podcast. So, Shara... Let's start with Neanderthals. They hold a lot of fascination for people.
0: Right, Crystal? Right, right. Neanderthals are so interesting. And, you know, I think people do have such a fascination with them because they are so different than humans. and we, we all the that we have left of them are their remains, their um, burials. And to me, the burials are so fascinating. And so... Um, and they were 18, on the, the planet at the same time
1: were. our ancestors were, which, yeah. is, which I think is hard to get our minds around. So ever since the first Neanderthal remains were found in the 1800s, people have noticed that their bones look different from modern humans and that they behaved a bit differently, too. So... They're a little bit stockier, their heads are shaped a little bit differently, Um, their tools are made a very certain way, and not necessarily as much innovation as we find with modern humans. They don't have as much evidence, at least early on, of making art, of um, burying their dead, although there are a few uh, somewhat controversial Mm -hmm. examples. They don't make clothing the same way that modern humans do, and they use different hunting technology. So archaeologists and paleoanthropologists have been trying to understand what those differences mean and how Neanderthals were related to modern humans, not being our ancestors. Were they a separate species? Are they a cousin? And those interpretations have changed so much over the past century, and even more so in the past decade or two. So Shar, we're wondering if you could just start by telling us what led you to study Neanderthals for your doctoral research back at Arizona State University, as well as a bit about why you think Neanderthals still have such a hold on popular imagination.
2: Well, sure. Um, So as you mentioned, um, ever since 1856, when the first Neanderthal fossils were found in Feldhofer. Uh, Germany in the Neander Valley people have been fascinated by them right what what are they are they our ancestors are they kind of an extinct branch of the human family tree like you said maybe a cousin right what is their relationship to us and this question was still being asked uh, in the early 1990s when we were getting to know each other and if you might remember our friend and uh, colleague Kathy Willermitt organized a symposium at Arizona State University on modern human origins. And they brought in many people, Chris Stringer, right? You remember Jeff Clark was there. And nice. Anyway, all these people were having a discussion about whether or not ne- um, homo sapiens, our species, evolved in one place, Africa, and spread out and replaced everybody else in the world or whether they may have evolved in separate places around the world. And, um, you know, what I noticed was that uh with all of these presentations nobody was really addressing the teeth uh, and especially the teeth of fossil hominins so um so that's what got me interested in it because it seemed to me to be a a niche i could fill Uh, so for example if neanderthals were our ancestors and neanderthals we know are a european uh, you know slash west asian species then um we would expect that fossil uh, Europeans and recent Europeans would have more Neanderthal traits, right, than um, than uh, other groups. And so I decided to look at the dental morphology and, you know, found out that, in fact, Neanderthals had a lot of unique traits, and those unique traits disappear abruptly, um, coincident with the emergence of Homo sapiens uh, in Europe. So as far as my research went, it, it supported other research that suggested that Neanderthals were not uh, our ancestors, at least, and were probably uh, most likely, if not a distinct species, were at least on their way to becoming a distinct species, right? And I think that, um, you know, what's so fascinating now is that while all the data support this uh, hypothesis that we evolved in Africa and spread out and uh, you know, throughout the rest of the world, we now know because of the DNA that when these different groups met, rather than being completely replaced, as was the the strict out of Africa hypothesis, uh, when they met, they exchanged genes, right? And they and they um, at least some of the time, right? Because everyone outside of Africa has some neanderthal dna between one and four percent
0: i know i do probably- Do you? i do i was gonna look this morning to see what my percentage is and i forgot but i know you don't remember Nancy, i don't remember, do remember? Nancy, i think
1: what yours? i have a lot i think i'm higher i'm more like four percent and then i have red hair and i know neanderthals might have but i don't know if that's a same stretch of dna or not i know right that- no it's not they have it they have a different
2: red hair mutation actually so but maybe we but, yeah, would have been but,
1: attracted to each other
2: so. have, <laughs> perhaps but, but i mean but this is what becomes so fascinating right because lots of people have done this test right so now yeah. the question is not you know could we mate right because if they were different species you would say well okay they, we, we couldn't mate and produce viable fertile offspring obviously we did but That's not such a big deal because the whole biological species concept, blah. Anyway. But that's an important point. It's it's, violated all the time. It's violated all the time.
1: Yeah. So lots of things we call species. So wolves and dogs and uh, grizzly bears, polar bears, these things can mate and produce viable offspring. So species is sort of a way of talking about populations of living organisms. But in terms of that rule of... Yeah, interbreeding—it well, to- can be violated at times.
2: Yeah, well, you have to think about it, right? Think you were, we are living at a slice in time. Right. It's not like all speciation is over. Right. Right. It's right. still going on, so you're always going to have lineages separating, but they haven't quite reached species status all right so Neanderthals okay. yeah and, and humans share a common ancestor about seven hundred thousand years ago well trent holiday i don't know if you ever met trent but a colleague of ours at, at tulane he did this fantastic paper looking at lots and lots of mammals and basically the rule is if you have separated less than a million years ago you can mate and produce fertile offspring so right.
0: Interesting.
1: We I so. use the example of of caribou and reindeer which can I think still interbreed but now they're okay. separated since that land bridge and that often means mm. that if we give it more time they may be distinct yeah. and separate enough. Of course now though we move them back and forth as humans, but that wouldn't right. have happened. So Neanderthals and and modern humans could have been like caribou and reindeer if We had some staying in Africa and then some in. So what you're saying with your research is you looked at the teeth of Neanderthals and you found some things that looked very different that you could measure and quantify from modern humans. And those traits that you found in those Neanderthal fossils did not show up in the populations of modern humans that currently live or even probably some archaeological populations from those same areas in europe or or southeast asia that um exactly okay Mm -hmm. exactly
2: so neanderthals look more like africans they look more like neanderthal teeth look more like living african teeth than they do like european teeth right so Um, That's because, or I should say sub-Saharan African, because sub-Saharan African dentitions have um, just a lot of traits. They've retained a lot of traits that we also see in Neanderthals and other uh, fossil hominids.
1: Can you give us an example of a trait that we find in Neanderthals that we don't find in modern humans? Uh, Well, yeah, so... (laughs) You really want me to
2: do it? Okay. So <laughs> don't, uh, don't get crazy here. But. Okay. Let's see. So there's, there's uh, on your lower molar, uh, right? You have five cusps. Well, yeah. So on, at least on the first molar anyway. So in the, in the front cusps, um, there could be a little, uh, a crest of enamel, a loaf or whatever you want to call it that connects the front two cusps. Hmm. Okay. So um, in the anotals, you see that in a hundred percent of the, of the molars. Okay. Or, or maybe there, I think there's one, I think Sansa's there doesn't have it. Um, And then you, if you move back, you might find that in, in some human populations, you might have maybe, well, I think like the early homo Homo sapiens, maybe 30% in one, in, in those groups. But as you move back towards the M2 and then the wisdom tooth, um, the the percentage in homo sapiens goes way down and Neanderthals maintain this 95 to 98% frequency of this, Stupid little crest that I have no idea. Don't ask me. What
1: but it's that. a but it's a <laughs> uh, measurable yes. shape it's on observed. the molar. Yes, that looks different, and you can identify that yeah. readily even if you just have one tooth. Yeah, or two teeth.
2: Yeah, and and on the upper on the upper first uh, molar. Um, the that there's a the Neanderthal shape is it's very skewed, you know, like a very rhomboid, a skewed rhomboid, whereas Homo sapiens tends to be more square, and this skewed rhomboid shape is something you do not see in Homo erectus or any earlier hominins. This is something that's neanderthals and their ancestors so you see it as cima de los huesos which are 300,000 year old i would consider them pre-neanderthals but they have uh, some of this characteristic with a ah. with um with different proportions of the cusps um as well
1: and then it's inherited, so i think like that,
2: yeah, yeah and that's one of those traits that if you gave me an upper if you just said, "Here's an upper first molar, what is it?" I could tell you it's a Neanderthal or not, just
0: mm. just by in. looking at it. Just looking, just by looking at yeah. it. It's so one it's of those. In, it's inherited. It I wish they were all
1: first molars, right? <laughs>
0: it's inherited,
2: so.
1: but it's not necessarily adaptive. It just persists. And then one of the things you said that's kind of an advantage to studying teeth in other places. When I've heard you speak, is that teeth are so much more likely than other things to be preserved. Um, yep. so yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about why that is.
2: Well, teeth are about 97% mineral in content. So, uh, if you listen to any of my other podcasts or shows, I like to say they're fossils already in your mouth because mm-hmm. literally I can show you some teeth from 300,000 year old fossils and they look just like teeth that you would pull out of somebody's mouth, Or at least the, the white part, the enamel does, the root would look different, but cause the root is more like bone has more organic components so so because teeth are practically fossils already in your mouth they don't have to go through a fossilization process right so any bone uh has to be covered up and protected and not smashed and not trampled on and not chewed and all that stuff before it can be go through the fossilization process teeth don't have to go through that so most of what we know about evolution in general you know especially if you go back to the eocene and look at um, primate evolution it's all teeth it's all jaws and teeth um, and and it's the same for um, humans. Uh, we we have a lot of teeth, and they're very well very well preserved. The only problem is that people wear them down. So,
1: hmm.
2: um, <laughs> they, so that like, weird
1: little bump that Neanderthals had, you could still find it. They didn't wear it all away, though, huh? That's On right, exactly. Yeah. Right, right.
2: <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that doesn't wear away. But um, yeah, so luckily they didn't. Most of them didn't live to be too old. So. I mean, not luckily for them, but
0: yeah.
1: luckily well, <laughs> for yeah. me. Yeah, this well, was a good career choice for you then, lots yeah. of teeth around. Mm.
0: What was their um, average age? How long did they live? Oh, well, yeah,
2: it's really hard to tell. I think most people would say somewhere in their 40s or something like
0: that. Okay, probably. okay, yeah. All right.
2: I mean, there's a couple really old ones, you know, that are missing all their teeth, but it's really unusual um, for that to happen, for them to be that old.
0: Interesting. Okay. okay. Thanks, Shara. So even though we've known about Neanderthals for well over a century, some aspects of them still remain such a mystery, don't they? Um, nevertheless, you and other paleoanthropologists have learned so much. New finds and new scientific techniques have led to some amazing breakthroughs. What do you think are some of the most recent discoveries regarding Neanderthals?
2: Of the most recent discoveries yeah. well, um, change the way we yeah. think about them, yeah, well, I think that um I would love to say they're about teeth, but they're not <laughs> um, but they're, i I think you know the 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 past decade or two has led to discoveries that I think fascinate a lot of people, and that's um about more about Neanderthal, okay, let's say besides the DNA because of course okay. that's that's yeah. the big thing, right. The big thing is how much DNA we all have of Neanderthals. The fact that, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, so you say, okay, you've got between one to 4% Neanderthal DNA in all of us, but, but they're not the same DNA pieces. So if you actually yeah, that's put them all together. Fa- that's fascinating. Yeah. So you're mm-hmm. saying we
1: all have different bits, even though we all have. So could you put a whole Neanderthal together from all that, I wonder?
2: No, they have about 20% of okay. the genome represented at this point. Okay. But I mean, of course, they haven't sampled everybody in the world. So it's very possible, you know, that they would be able to to keep, build, I'm sure they'll keep building on that. But about 20% of the Neanderthal genome is represented by Homo sapiens. So, you know, that's super fascinating. And I would say it's really super fascinating, uh, uh, the kinds of, like, what does that then mean? Like, what does it mean to be 2% Neanderthal? Does that mean, right, my colleague... Um, at the Max Planck, uh, Philip Gunz uh, did a study um, a couple years ago, and I think it's in the Journal of Human Biology, where they actually were able to correlate uh, the amount of Neanderthal DNA with head shape. Like, so, which was, Um. which was funny because my students would always say, oh, well, so, you know, that guy must have a lot of Neanderthal DNA because they look like a Neanderthal. And I'd be like, no, 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 those things don't translate into whether you look like a Neanderthal or not. Well,
1: oh, I was wrong. Boy. So
2: <laughs> in some cases, <laughs> we have to be so careful. there, there yeah. is, it, it affects the, the shape of the brain. And, the, mm. and so that's what, so, um yeah, and I, it's a really fascinating study that, that, shocked me uh, because i you know because we all see especially in new york city you know you're on the subway you see people you're like that <laughs> guy he's he's a six percenter
1: you know, like and he has that stretch that uh, deals with That's head right. morphology and brow ridges
0: well i always exactly te- i always so- tease my husband because he has more um neanderthal <laughs> dna than i do so <laughs> Right. Yeah, so right? So like of, yeah. yeah. Right. So it's right. like a little badge.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's and they're trying to find out, um, as you know, this new, this new uh, article that came out on the COVID link. Um, yeah, they, they're trying to figure out what that means. And, and the fact that they see that um, the Neanderthal genes that humans do have relate to um, skin, and perhaps cold adaptations, um, you know, some of the things that don't shouldn't surprise us, uh, but also our immune responses, and so I think having Neanderthal DNA increases your chances of having lupus and autoimmune diseases, um, but it can also protect us. So right now, I think there's a lot of really fascinating research going on and trying to figure out what the what it means to have a certain amount of Neanderthal DNA. But I mean, that seems like obvious. So I was going to go for the, the kind of cultural things that we've been finding out. And in the past decade, there's been a number of studies that have suggested that Neanderthals you know, had cognitive abilities that we never, you know, ascribed to them before or gave them credit for. So uh, collecting bird feathers, probably using them in personal ornamentations or the bird talons or um, ochre and manganese for body, um, for uh, body decorating. Um, You know, so obviously, and you mentioned burials, right? So they had a level of symbolic thought that we really never gave them credit for in the past and even still today people are always still trying to qualify it like well they were just blackbirds. it's not like they had the red ones so you know, like, <laughs> you know they weren't very pretty or you know or something like that so we're constantly trying to downplay their innovation but i think you know in the past decade uh we've even i because i tend to be on the um you know i tend to think there was there was some kind of advantage, cultural advantage that Homo sapiens had, which um, contributed at least to the Neanderthal demise. So, so it's, so it's been very fascinating for me to kind of kind of step back from that a little bit and be like, huh, I don't, you know, maybe they were actually a lot more like us than than we thought and we give them credit for.
1: It's it's fascinating now because I find when I talk to people, sometimes my students or other people, people are proud now about the amount of Neanderthal mm-hmm. DNA. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. in the past it's it would be. very different than it. I mean, like you said, there's often this downplaying, which I think still happens in the science to some degree. You know, they weren't as good as modern humans and somehow we outcompeted them, right? Yeah. Um, right. And, that, and we'll get to talking a bit about their demise. But now I find a lot of people are very excited about having Neanderthal DNA and how much they that doesn't see. It seems to have a little cachet. Yeah.
0: So, um, and you know,
1: now that they're finding these older paintings, like you said, too, that maybe date sixty thousand years ago in parts of Spain, and I'm sure some of the research on this will change over time as, as it is as we know more. There's that question of are they are they painting more than just their bodies? Maybe are they painting. Um, anything on on cave walls as well but we know early modern humans collected lumps of ochre and things like that well before we find evidence for rock art so there is a lot more parallels i often wonder if the innovation aspect of humans results from perhaps a larger population size um, and that larger groups of people can lead to innovations but also, those yeah. Neanderthals were living in that ice age, cold weather. I mean, that must have just yeah. slowed you down, right? Yeah. We haven't really talked well, about what life was like in Europe for Neanderthals. Yeah. When they were I, I
2: think you you made a really good point about population. So if I could just follow up on that a little bit. because so So let's say you have a, a group of people, and they're living sparse on the landscape, as it appears Neanderthals did. And this is why we see... There are times when Neanderthals kind of are depopulated; they they disappear for a while, and then they come back. They bounce back, and I, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, let's say um, Ned Neanderthal comes up with this great idea, like let's do this, right? And, and, you know, the people of his group write, like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Let's do this. Oh, yeah, let's paint our bodies. And, and then, but they never meet anybody else, right? So, you mm, know, that that's yeah. just going to die with them, right? It's not going right. to get passed on. Right. Or, or let's say Ned the Neanderthal comes up with something great, and none of the other people in his group are, you know, as intelligent. And they're just like, what are you wasting your time <laughs> with that for? You know, go find a
0: woolly
2: rhinoceros or something, right? So... I sometimes and I it's I have you know no science to back it up, but I like to kind of think of Neanderthal geniuses behind some of this stuff that we're finding because it is there are very considering how many Neanderthal sites there are there are very few with you know, feathers or things that suggest um symbolic behavior. And most of them are later, possibly that, during that time period when modern humans were too. there. Okay.
1: Yeah. So it's it's not so, early on in Neanderthal. I mean, that's also similar to modern humans. More of the innovation we see is is more recent. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So I mean it could also be a response to coming in contact with other people. Right? And so now right. you have to distinguish us from them. And so now it makes sense. Or you know, so I think that it's a really complex uh question but i but i do think population could have something i think when you have a larger population ideas can spread very quickly get built upon whereas when you have populations that are separated somebody might come up with a great idea and it might not be appreciated or it just might never go not go anywhere
0: yeah that makes sense shari you know there's that bone flute that they recently found that was associated with a neanderthal burial and and that might just be that example that you just gave you know someone Figured that out, but they weren't able to pass that on. So that's right, interesting right. to think about. No, maybe nobody liked the music. Right. Maybe, or maybe <laughs> they someone... They may, it.
1: Right. And maybe someone invited a modern human because yeah, that right. person was contributing genes. Who knows? To right? the funeral. Right. So I'm... Who right. knows? But that, I think, is, is the fun part of this research is that we have um, these actual remains and then... With the increasing amount of data, we can look at different facets of what might have have been. But um, we want to ask that question about sort of what what about the ultimate demise of Neanderthals? I think that is one of the aspects that really um, holds a lot of mystery for people.
2: yeah Yeah. people still want to know what 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 happened to them even though we know that they're still around because they live within us right they're they're obviously not you know around save that one or two people we see in the new york city subway um but um yeah so so there's so like every big question in paleoanthropology this is a big debate right and people have been working on this for a long time there's a whole ois3 project oxygen isotope stage three project that looks at this time period what's going on in the climate right and they found that uh, during the time period when neanderthals disappear there's a cold snap it's quite cold and then you also have these fluctuations in temperature really really strong um marked fluctuations that that um, in one, one individual's lifetime, they would have experienced. These fluctuations in temperature can affect, um, of course, the environment, what kinds of foods are available. And so there are some people who, are, who blame the Neanderthal demise on this cold snap and then the subsequent zigzaggy thing going on with the temperature. Uh, other people say, no, it was because, um, you know, the coinc- the the, coinc- the coinciding demise of Neanderthals with the emergence of Homo sapiens in Europe is just too big of a coincidence. Modern humans must have either killed them outright or brought in some disease that wiped them off out or, you know, or outcompeted them. And it's all Homo sapiens fault. I tend to fall in the middle there. So I think, and there's a reason for that. So when you look at the climate, Uh, during the time that Neanderthals were on the earth, there are other pockets of time where it's really, really cold. Um, There's at least two where we see really marked cold snaps. um, And you do see a depopulation of Neanderthals, but they bounce back. They always come back, right? They came back 120,000 years ago. They came back 70,000 years ago, Hmm. 30,000 years ago, when this 30 to 40, when this all happened, they don't come back right and the only difference between those two time periods that i see is that now not only do you have the climate change the the effects on the environment but then you also have another human group competing with you for the same resources that perhaps are coming in with a longer range weapons perhaps know how to hunt on a you know on a, a grassy landscape right because so the cold would would reduce the forests, and neanderthals were ambush hunters okay Okay, so they they would not have you know so that would reduce where they're able to do their most effective hunting but then you have modern humans who are like cool it's you know they're out there on the tundra or whatever where step i should say you know so i think that i think it was a combination of both
1: and the and the bounce back maybe would have happened if modern humans hadn't been there, perhaps. I think it probably Mm -hmm. would have. And it could be the competing, and then you had mentioned perhaps some disease or something. And so we had briefly, briefly mentioned that this new article in Nature that came out, that there's a DNA sequence in some modern humans um, now. I think just uh, 16% or so Europeans, but maybe half of South Asians a stretch that was inherited from Neanderthals that seems to have put those people who have it at higher risk for developing the more severe symptoms of COVID-19. So something very relevant to today. So this was reported in The Guardian after it was published in Nature, I think just two days ago. Um, so it makes you realize how relevant that story of our deep past is today during this, this current pandemic. And and do you do you think there's things about disease transference one way or the other I, i'm sure it's complicated and genetics isn't necessarily your field but um just what your thoughts are on that
2: yeah well i mean yeah i'm i'm not um i'm not an epidemiologist so it's it's hard i mean i don't think we can write it off and say you know it you know it absolutely didn't happen mostly because the kinds of diseases that wipe people out are diseases of, um, you know, being in close contact, you know, like, and so, um, you know, these kinds of these kinds of really big pandemics and stuff like that don't usually happen unless you have high population, high density, mm-hmm. high concentration, and so, so I get kind of like, yeah, I'm not so sure about the disease hypothesis, although I, I'm not going to write it off completely. Um, but um i mean it's certainly a possibility I, I i personally just think they were stressed because of the cold and the the climate fluctuations i mean that might have been even more stressful than the cold itself um and i think so then then i think that their population size shrunk already just like it did in the past and we could observe that based on the number of archaeological sites we see during these time periods and i think that the it was just Homo sapiens was kind of the final nail in the coffin for them personally Uh, for at least some of them and some of them of course we know you know i think they they i think they modeled like one mating every 50 years would would give Mm. you the amount of neanderthal dna that we see in in homo sapiens today so it wasn't like they were it's not a lot it's like they probably didn't encounter each other when they suggest that um, there is some selection against hybrids Um, Usually, when you see that, um, it's the it's their selection against the 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 gender that has the mixed chromosome. So, the male, right, X Y, okay, in, right, because other animals have Z's and stuff, but for us, it would be the X Y, which is male. So, um, it could be the so some of the Neanderthal um, DNA it suggests that that might have been selected against this way. So, the males might have been less fertile. Less fertile mm-hmm. or less viable
1: and we or might sterile. have maybe yeah. through the female line more of that. Yeah. Neander- oh that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so Shara, we want to move on a little bit from Neanderthals because they're fascinating yeah. but you've also done research on so many other fossil hominid species and we'd like our listeners to hear about a few of those um, and some of these might not be as well known to them. So I want to start with Denisovans and, and am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I've heard m- many people say Denisovans, other things. So we're going to say Denisovans here. Okay. I think so- they're dead and they don't care. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> they don't know what they've been named. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they're like, we're not called that at all. Because yeah, right. that's just, just the name of the sense. cave, right? Mm-hmm. right, in Siberia, right. where they were found. Okay. Yeah. So um, can you tell us a little bit about them, um, place them sort of alongside Neanderthals and modern humans, and then about your particular fascinating research on Denisovan teeth. Okay, sure. Yeah. So Denisovans
2: are a, a cousin of Neanderthals and a more distant cousin of us. We don't know if they were a different species or not. We don't have enough of their skeleton at this point to be able to say that, but they do have distinct DNA. So um, I was first introduced to them when my colleague Bensa Viola um, Brought some casts of the first Denisovan teeth to one of our conferences, and and I was I was just agog a with the size of the really really big teeth.
1: Wow. Um,
2: but other than that, and and not Neanderthals, and that's why I was I just said that's not a Neanderthal. Wow. Otherwise, so it didn't have
1: that. It didn't have that characteristic bump on the molar. Okay. No. no. All right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. No.
2: It, it, what was an upper molar, and it didn't have that, that rhomboid skewy shape so yeah so um so and that's basically why why he even showed them to me because he wanted okay. to know that so um and i wasn't really i wasn't involved in the research but he, he did show me the cast and so that was the first time i'd ever really heard of them or saw them and then um you know and then they were excavating at denise of a cave and they were able to find um, dna and that's how we learned it was later that we actually learned you know that there's a, a distinct group based on their dna and um, and, and some of the coolest thing is that we find, um, their DNA in recent humans disproportionately of Asian origin. Oh, um, so wow. Melanesia, uh, China, um, also, also Australia, um, they have Denisovan DNA, much, much higher frequencies than anybody else. Uh, and also then this recent discovery, um, through, um, uh, DNA, they found a first-generation hybrid between Neanderthal and the Denisovans. So we know that Denisovans were not very discriminating. They're like, Neanderthal, cool, let's go. And the mom a say, Dans, cool,
1: right? So they would like, date anybody. <laughs> okay, you can bring <laughs> anyone home, some right, mom exactly. or dad, if you're a Denisovan. <laughs> right. Okay, good.
2: So, um, but my my chance to work on them came when um, my colleague at the Max Planck, Jean-Jacques Hublin, who directs the Department of Human Evolution, was called... Because um, they had rediscovered this jaw. It was in the drawer of a a monk who had passed away. That is just
1: (laughs) a crazy story. I remember reading that and thinking, what are the chances? So they knew it was old, but no one had known it was in this monk's drawer until he passed away. Fascinating, right? right. Mm-hmm. Makes so, you wonder what else is out there. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what's in I'm drawers? Sure. What's in attics? <laughs> <Yeah>. What's yeah? In...
2: <laughs> Christy Turner used to say, "You got to go to the museums and just look through their drawers." <laughs> I'm yeah. like, oh, they don't really <laughs> let you do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but if you could, yeah, yeah. who knows awesome. what you would? So, find.
2: Yeah, who knows what you would find? But um, anyway, so so he called upon me because um, uh, I'm his dental expert and. Uh, because we can, we did all this work remotely, um, through the, so they did a micro CT scan, uh, which allows us to image all the teeth, even within the jaw itself, which is cool. Cause then, Amazing. you know, yeah. when you open your mouth, you see all the white, those are the crowns of the teeth, but you can't see the roots, but the roots can be really informative too. And, and so, so there I am looking, I'm like, yeah, they're really big, just as I would have expected. They, you know, they don't look like Neanderthals, which is what I would expect. Um, and um, so the weird thing about this jaw is they were missing the wisdom tooth, which is something, you know, we all think, you know, that, that they don't, we don't realize that that's actually unusual, right? Missing right, wisdom teeth.
1: Right. Most
2: fossil hominins have their wisdom teeth. So this, this was complete um, agenesis. Age so it had not formed. It's not like mm-hmm. it was uh, you know, when it was a kid. So, um, so that was really cool. And then so I'm I'm looking at the second molar and I'm you know to taking descriptions and I'm spinning it around in virtual space and I'm looking at the roots and I'm like, what right? And then I see that this this second molar so lower it's a lower molar because it's a it's a lower jaw. Um, they're supposed to have two roots, one in the front, and one in the back, and they're kind of plate-like and wide. Um, and this one had three. And hmm. uh, you know I think oh well that's you know that's interesting, but. You know, because I trained with Christy Turner, Arizona State University, I know a lot about modern human variation. And this is one of the traits. This is the three rooted lower molar. Right. That we all learned is an Asian characteristic. So oh, wow. to me, that was just pretty fascinating to find evidence of this trait we thought was actually new. Right. right, A new trait in, in Asian-derived populations maybe less than 20,000-year-old. And, and we
1: thought it was limited to modern human populations. Yes, and how exactly. old was the jaw again? The, the Denisovan human.
2: jaw is like, uh, I want to say 160,000.
1: Wow, so okay. that's quite a bit early. And we have modern yeah, humans evolving in Africa at this time, but we don't necessarily have them migrating into Asia at this point. Right. So what? So what
2: this suggested to me is that this is evidence of. So if this is the Denisovan characteristic, and in fact there's another jaw from Taiwan that hadn't had not been assigned to a species or you know whatever group um, that has both the missing third molar and the three-rooted molar as well. So to me, this might this might be a Denisovan characteristic, and mm-hmm. it just made it into modern Asians through. Um, through admixture you know so
1: that's that's what I that's
2: what I proposed
1: And that's interesting because I know from other articles I've read about Denisovan traits because they don't have a lot in terms of the skeletal remains or, or even Not dental so, remains. Yeah. But they, um, so we don't even really know what they looked like in terms of their cranium mm-hmm. and their and their facial proportions right. compared to Neanderthals. But we do have from their DNA that in modern Tibetan populations there's yep. a stretch of DNA. uh, that allows you to produce more hemoglobin so you can do better at high altitudes where there's lower oxygen. So this is not the more red blood cells we produce, which could give you lots of problems of maybe having a stroke or preeclampsia for women who are pregnant, Mm -hmm. which can be a problem for humans at high altitude. But Tibetans, the Sherpas that go up and down Everest, um, yeah. A lot of Tibetan folks have this gene and it came from yeah. likely Denisovans because they had it and they're yeah. older. It's the same mm-hmm. gene. It's the mm-hmm. same, Fascinating. Yeah, it's the same, um, you know, the same sequence. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so we had that. And so, you
2: know, we knew that we knew that they made it and that some modern human populations got this incredible advantage through those, uh, you know, those hybridization events that happened probably early on. But but we didn't have any morphological evidence right. of it.
1: That's so fascinating so to of, have that concrete tooth and then this stretch of DNA and to be able to make these can I thank goodness yeah. that monk kept that job.
0: <laughs> right. That's fantastic. In his drawer all those years. In his drawer, yeah. Same, same. So so this is just so interesting, Shara. And um, but I you know, I've I've been hearing a lot over the last um, few years about the Hobbit. And the species that comes from the island of Flores in Southeast Asia. And is that a part of Indonesia? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So could you tell us more about, about the hobbit, um, that it yeah. has been named the hobbit? And can you explain yeah. a little oh, bit about it's, that? It was
2: named the hobbit because it's got big feet.
0: Oh really <laughs> i didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> I just keep wondering if they were hairy feet, right
1: because yeah yeah, right? yeah, yeah, they'd be right out of uh, the fantasy yes. right, yeah. right, but, yeah. right, no, right but they
2: they have they have long they have long feet, yeah, the hobbit is so the hobbit, so the past like ten years have been incredible for paleoanthropology because almost every new species we find we're like whoa what is that yeah. it know? wasn't it, predicted it's not supposed to look like that the story
1: right yeah
2: right it messes up our story our story was already bushy it's not like we've ever <laughs> been thinking that human is like this ladder like progressive evolution nobody believes that but but you know we you get the so the hobbit is this thing that's um this hominid that dates to, they keep changing the date. I think the date is now somewhere around seventy to 90,000 years old. So it's very um, young. You it's, it's, it's young. But uh,
1: same it's, time modern humans are walking around, same yeah. time Neanderthals are walking around, but it's on this weird little island. And, and tell us what it looks like. So it has a
2: teeny tiny chimpanzee-sized brain. It has a skull that if you were to analyze the shape of the skull in three dimensions, it looks more like a shrunken down homo erectus it's got limbs that look like australopithecus like Lucy's species lucy and mm-hmm. then um when i looked at the teeth you know the the molars look like hom- they look like indonesian molars they mm-hmm. they were simplified they only had four cusps your molars are supposed to have five cusps but they only had four cusps um all of them um you know no uh, none of these Neanderthal crests on them or anything really simple also kind of weird looking but then there was um the the third, the the bicuspid that's closest to your canine tooth, so we call it the P3 or the third premolar. That looked like nothing I'd ever seen ever before, so it was really? completely unique. Okay, yeah. and so, they, yeah. so, so, they didn't so have that, that
1: extra root in their molar that you were talking
2: mm-hmm. about with yeah. yeah. Denisovans. Well, not in no, they don't have the extra root in the molar. They have three roots on the that uh, that premolar, that bicuspid ah. premolar. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, which is which is a primitive characteristic. It's not it's not like it's not unique to Asians or anything like that, but it's a, it's something you see. So it has this weird mix of really, really primitive characteristics, including this teeny tiny brain and then, you know, stuff that looks more modern, like some aspects of the teeth. So it's, it was really an enigma. Um,
1: And it's very small and it's so far only been found on this Island.
2: Yeah. So it's about three feet tall. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of human remain and a lot of, bones, but only one skull. Um, but they do have two jaws and then an isolated tooth that happens to be this weird tooth and they all look the same. So, you know, at first you, I was working off the hypothesis that this is just some weird thing and that's why it has a weird small brain and, you know, and weird teeth. But in fact, they all have the weird tooth. So that's not a weird Okay. No, right. probably not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about the small brain, you know, it could be a dwarfed homo erectus. It could be a microcephalic homo erectus, you know, who the, who the heck knows. Um, but, but until we whole... find another skull, it's, right. it's, it's, it's yeah. not a, it's not homo sapiens though. Absolutely not. Which some people have said it's some kind of my, uh, you know, weird homo sapiens, but it's not.
1: But it's about the, the height of a female Lucy um, yeah. In terms of an austral, but it's but its head and teeth are totally different from an australopithecine. So yes, and then got it, the brain size of an australopithecine, right? But, not but the this. not the, the other, and then it it's also um, found in such a, a strange location, uh, away completely from other australopithecines, right. and and then it's so recent in time, the dating. So right. so there's a lot of things there that make it hard to explain based on other yeah. things people have thought about the family tree yeah
2: well they they think that so there are some recent homo erectus um in indonesia they think i think the last date they came up with was something like a hundred thousand years so it's very possible that a population of homo erectus got to the island of flores and then uh you know dwarfed in size and maybe because of resource um uh limitations that you know their brain disproportionately dwarfed down but if but if they had a brain size of some other Homo erectus, like from Georgia, their brain sizes were actually under 600 cubic centimeters. So that's not that much of a, a shrinking down. Um. So I think to me that's that's the hypothesis I I like most that right. it's some kind of dwarfed Homo erectus
1: and and no DNA from these no. available Didn't no preserve DNA. Okay. it's
2: that DNA really doesn't preserve in uh, warm tropical areas mm. so almost all the DNA I mean if you think of all the Neanderthal remains we have and we have like fourteen DNA sequences um you know the the ability to extract DNA is still quite uh I should say the probability is still quite low and and then only they're only finding it in Europe you know and
1: Denisova in Siberia it's a cold dry cave so that's why we get DNA from there okay okay that's that one just is fascinating to me and um I uh I know my students are always some of the most fascinated about the hobbit and um I, I keep hoping that they'll just find a little bit more because they're just finding some stone tools, but they're not exactly sure what what it was capable of doing. Although there are supposedly these spitting Komodo dragons that it, it would have had to contend with um, on, <laughs> yeah. on the island. Yeah,
2: so. and giant rats, I think. That oh, geez. Yeah. It really <laughs> <Yeah>. sounds like <laughs> something awful. out of a movie. It really doesn't is, sound right?
1: like yeah. something yeah. that's real, you know? Yeah. But,
2: we, but we know this happens, right? So uh, you have, right, you know about the dwarf stegodons and dwarf Dwarf hippos, right? So, hippos, island things happen. Yeah. And, you know, rats get bigger and hippos get smaller. And there there is a a, a cultural
1: history of the people who live on the island of Flores talking about little people. Um, mm Yeah. Which just makes it even more interesting, right? <laughs> Perhaps okay. we shouldn't
2: ignore indigenous people when they talk about exactly, like that. exactly. exactly. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> okay. So I want to also get in um, the newest member of the genus Homo, Homo naledi, and this one is another one like the Hobbit that really threw me for a loop when we were when I was teaching human evolution and had to figure out where to slot in my discussion of Homo naledi and what was going on, Um, because this species is also quite a bit younger in time, has a smaller brain, but it's found in Southern Africa. Um, so I want you to tell me a little bit about that, and for our listeners to explain a little bit about why the context in which Homo naledi fossils were found by Lee Berger and his team is so fascinating, and then and then what you learned from looking at the teeth because you actually got to go in and see the fossil, right? I
2: did. Yeah, mm. yeah. I saw them when they were first pulling out, pulling them out of the cave, and you know they hadn't really sorted them at all. They were in the vault. That was pretty exciting. Um, and then I got a chance to study them when. Um, colleagues matt skinner and luke delazine put together a a big grant um for it to bring in to make a big dental workshop with um uh, a bunch of us so and that was probably i don't even know maybe that was like four or five years ago now um and my paper just came out. That's <laughs> how long it takes. That was probably three years ago. Wow. Um, yeah. The, well, I I say that because the idea was we're all going to get in there, we're going to study the fossils, then we're going to write a paper within a, you know within uh, six months or something. And nobody did that. In fact, <laughs> you know, Lucas Lucas is still working on the descriptions of all the teeth because there's so many. Um, That's a good so, yeah, problem so to have. That is a good it problem. is. Yeah. It is. But yeah. but the the cool thing about I mean the story that people love to hear about with Homo naledi, if you have time. Sure. Um, Is, okay, is that it's found in, in, not only that it's found in a cave, I mean, this is where you find material in southern Africa, right, hominids are found in caves, but that um, this particular cave, to get to where the fossils are found, you have to go down pretty deep and then you have to get on your belly and go through this really tight area they call the Superman crawl because literally you have to have your hands out front oh and gosh. on your belly and pull yourself through right and <laughs> it then it sounds then terrifying to me seriously. It sounds
0: awful yeah, to have and, to do and Lee this. Berger
2: got stuck in there
0: oh my gosh
2: and, uh, <laughs> in one of them I don't know if it was in that or in a later but yeah so he got he was stuck there for like a couple hours I was told later oh, I was like my. I, I th- do you want to go Shara no
0: no thank you uh, <laughs>
2: So, um, but then, so, then you go through the Superman crawl and then you get into this giant cave, but they're not there. you have to go up this thing called the dragon back, and then down this chute, which at oh, its narrowest gosh. point is only uh like nine inches, right so Ooh, so, I actually yeah. probably couldn't even make it, right, so they had to hire. Uh, Five or six petite archaeologists, (laughs) females. um, And Lee put out a call on Facebook, of all things, right looking for petite archaeologists. So it was just a group of women. He
1: knew. Yeah, he knew. People would get stuck unless they were. Okay.
0: I remember seeing those petite archaeologists on a cover of National Geographic or something like that. Yeah, but keep keep going, sure
2: No, well, they're just amazing. And so then you have to go down this chute. Which is long, like forty feet long, or something. I mean, it's long. And then, and then at the bottom, there's just all these bones, and you're like, oh. how did they get there, right? And and there's just a lot. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of bones, and the and the 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 material around it looks like it's just all organic. So like the decomposition of the people, like that's what is made up there. And mm. so, so these aren't so-
1: fossilized.
2: They are like sub fossils. Okay. Yeah, they're not really fossilized
1: now. And they, yeah. um, and they are, um, were they living in that cave, Shara? How? Well, I mean, this no, well, seems there's like no a ridiculous stone tools to enter. Okay. Yeah, there's no stone
2: tools. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. There's no butchered animal bones. There's no animal bones at all. Right. This is this is in the part of the cave where animals don't go. Oh. Right. So. So we don't know why they're there. Lee and and a couple of people they think that it's a burial site. I personally don't. Mm-hmm. I just just because I can't imagine, like you know, think about a a dead body and trying to get it down that chute. You'd have to have like this big, you know, like tree trunk shoving them down there, and then the mm-hmm. arms going up here, and you know what I mean, like. And there's rigor mortis. Like I just can't even imagine how that would be. But just because I can't imagine it, I guess doesn't make it so. But. Um, yeah, so that's, so that so the context is really fascinating. So to get to the teeth, the teeth are really interesting. And I've proposed, um, early on, I proposed something that nobody really liked, um, because what I see in the baby teeth and, but also in the permanent teeth are similarities to a completely different genus called Paranthropus, which is found in South Africa. So you've got what you do, what they have is, um, their teeth get larger towards the back of the tooth row, which is not. It was the opposite of what you see in Homo sapiens, but it's what you see in Australopithecus. Their lower canines are super pointy, and if they have a little cusp in the back, that makes it look like a mitten. Uh, the canine okay. looks like a pointy mitten, if okay. you can imagine. Hmm. Uh, which is a very... I see that in the Laetoli remains more than 3.5 million years ago. Um, So there are a lot of Australopithecus characteristics, and then there's some things that I've only ever seen in Paranthropus. And... Um, and even when I did a cladistic, although be it uh, you know it was a based on very few dental characteristics, um, that's who they link up with. So,
1: just for people who don't know, Paranthropus mm, yeah. has small brains. They're not our direct ancestor. They have massive cheek teeth for grinding yeah. down or chewing, and they they don't contribute after a million years ago, they seem to be gone, right? So there are much older species and and Homo naledi dates to, do we know? 300,000.
2: Okay. Yeah. So it would be very strange. And so, uh, but the thing is, is that my other colleagues who have continued to work on other aspects of the skeleton find also similarities between Homo naledi and much, much older species, some of which have unique characteristics so it's not just some kind of evolutionary baggage, if you will. Yeah. Uh, you know, something just kind of a holdover. So um so I don't know what it to- means. So I talked to Lee during the, the beginning of the lockdown. Lee Berger and I talked about the fact that other people were finding what I what I had kind of suggested were similarities to Paranthropus, And so we've been talking about what that might mean. We have to think about it. I'm and about so, why
1: <laughs> why is it in the genus Homo to sort of bring it back around? It's a good question
2: because it also has a brain size the size of a you know orange. It's like a really small brain. <laughs> um, uh, aspects of well, because okay, because it has um, elongated lower limbs is one reason, mm-hmm. and this is it's something tall. that is okay. a characteristic of of our genus of Homo. It's like one of the things that make us us. Um, I don't know any, I just, yeah, so there's no archaeology associated with them, which is strange for something this age,
1: right? It's Mm -hmm. just
2: really bizarre. Um, and just to 300,000
1: years ago in uh, around the time, that's when Neanderthals
2: were evolving and Homo Mm -hmm. sapiens in Europe and Homo sapiens was evolving in Africa. And
1: we would Mm -hmm. have had Australopithecines also still in Southern Africa where no, so Australopithecines
2: in Southern Africa, that's a good question. Disappear probably around two, uh, 1.8. So, well, you've got Australopithecus sediba that dates to 1.8 million. So
1: actually, Mm -hmm. but then there, yeah. Yeah, so there's a big gap there we don't really know a lot about. That's the point.
0: Okay, right? mm-hmm. is there,
2: there's a gap? But is that gap real, or is it just we need to fill it in? We just
0: haven't. We just haven't really, found what's, what's yeah. there. So much know? more to find out. Oh, so much, so, so much. much cool you stuff. know, it feels like we're just you know at the tip of the iceberg yep. here with all <laughs> yeah. this, all this yeah. research. Well, well, we went
2: through like millions of years of
1: evolution here. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So. yeah.
0: Well done. Yeah. yeah. Good job. Good. So let's bring it to the present, Shara. Um, I do a lot of my research in the United States, and a, a lot of it involves working with indigenous communities here in montana we have some of the oldest remains found in north america at the anzac site which is a burial um, of a young boy um, close to bozeman actually near wilson montana that dates to about twelve thousand five hundred years ago so a little bit more recent than we've been talking about um, today so our friend and and board member shane doyle has been actively Involved in uncovering more information about this burial through D- DNA, but what can you tell us about the peopling of the New World from the perspective of dental um, anthropology?
2: So um, it's an interesting question because that's actually why i decided to become an anthropologist was to study Mm. peopling of the new world and that's why i went to arizona state university was to study with christy turner um and uh and look at dental morphology and things so um so yeah he christy turner's work um he's like the was he passed away um he was the you know guy world um renowned guy for dental anthropology um his work was very um Informative for showing links between Northeast Asia and um, and the Americas,
1: and so, so he pioneered that work. huh? Yeah, yeah, he really did
2: pioneer that work. Now he, um, you know, he he thought there was, I say, I would say he perceived there to be less variation in Native American groups than um, some of us, including me and my some of my students, have found, um, and we've been doing some more research on that recently. Proposing actually to do a big collaborative project with geneticists and archaeologists and uh, other biological anthropologists to look at um, what's going on in South America because Christie kind of lumped everything it was like just you know the Americas you had the Athabascan which is in Canada and also the Navajo and Apache they're one language group and then you and you had the Eskimo and Inuit and then you had everybody else and I think that's probably too simplistic but But um, what we did learn from dental anthropology is that there are and and that mitochondrial DNA and and other biological um, aspects um, confirm is that there's this link between um, Northeast Asia and uh, and Native Americans. So they they had their origins there, you know, whether that was 15,000 years ago or 30,000 years ago, whether they came through over the Bering Land Bridge and down into the interior or came along the coast, those are still, you know, People are still debating about those kind of questions. So as
1: to how they got there, but what are some of the traits in the teeth that really signal that connection? Oh, that's a
2: good question. I should have said that. Um, So, yeah. So if you, your front teeth, you see when you smile are incisors. Um, Northeast Asians and native Americans have uh, ridges on the tongue surface of the, those teeth that they could feel. It's called shovel shaped incisors. That's your classic, um, you know, um, Uh, it's called a sinodont pattern because it's uh, this northeast asian pattern but you see that in native americans um that's one of the big ones also um having this ridges on the on the lip side of your incisors too it's called double shoveling um there's other there's root characteristics there's you know um cost number of the teeth but but the shoveling is is one of the big ones i think that everybody and and the lack of a European and African trait, which is um, a little bump on the tongue side of your upper first molar called carabellis cusp, which you see, it's really big and high frequency in Europeans, but also in Africans, but not um, very small or absent in um, Northeast Asian and Native American groups.
1: So is there is, what's the percentage you would say of uh, Native Americans that might have shovel shaped incisors? Or I don't know if that third root on that molar from. Davis oh, it's like percent. more than
2: 90 percent. Oh, wow. uh, for the three rooted for the three rooted molar, it depends on the population. The highest frequencies are found in not in the Americas, but in um, Northeast Asia, but Eskimo, uh, Inuit Eskimo groups have it in high frequency. Um, less so in like the populations that were in your area or in or in you know the Southwest. Uh, so the and um, and then one of the in Mongolia I think was a really big high group too. Yeah. So there's and that and those the highest groups are like forty percent. Right. So I would say high frequency of that trait is somewhere between twenty and forty percent. Um, and and you just don't find it really. I mean it's like one percent in Europeans and you know, like zero, (laughs) most other places. And I mean, I don't know, maybe there's one in Africa,
1: but it's very low. But the percentages drop off. I wonder if the Anzac boy had Yeah, I wonder too. You know,
0: and we work with a lot of um, descendant community members here in the work that we do, which of course is much more recent and and not as much of the deep time work that you do. But um, do physical anthropologists work with descendant communities? And if so, can you just talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, um, I did a lot of work, you know, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act uh, required that we start working with indigenous communities. And so um, I was involved with inventorying um, material in Arizona when I was a, a master's student. But most recently, the our Association, the American Association of Physical Anthropologists is uh, requiring people to um, reach out and involve indigenous communities um that might be represented today by some of the human remains that are in museums that we work on um and uh and uh involve them ask them talk to them um at least show evidence that we have tried to reach out to people um and it's it's interesting because for somebody like me that has collected data from all over the world and and done so over the past 20 years um you know it, so I wonder sometimes, like how how am I how do I manage that, right? I mean, who do I if I have, um, you know, in my database I have Japan, right? I don't I don't actually even know if I knew where, <clears throat> you know, where it's from. I'm sure I could go back to the museum and and but I mean, so so I I it'll be interesting to see how that that plays out, um, what we what we can do or whether it's enough that the museum reaches out to those people or or whether we all have to. To it. So, so these I are think collections it's in
1: some- made in in sort of colonial times, and mm-hmm. yeah, and exactly. some groups in in well in our country, but then in other countries are sometimes um, requesting those remains back or requesting yeah. that they have some involvement in how they are. Studied or what's said yeah. about them. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. and so, so
2: yeah, so like I have a, I have a collection of stuff from Australia, and that that material was in the um, in London, and that material has been given back to um, to the people of Australia. So probably what that means is the next time I publish something on that material, I'll have to reach out
0: right mm-hmm. to to, mm-hmm.
2: L- to the museum curator in London and see if they've if there's a way for me to contact the now descendants to make sure I can use that in my analysis. Okay. But I think it's good. I think we need to recognize this, the, you know, the colonization of the past and and work with people.
0: Yes. Yes. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. We find that in our work. So Shara, We would love to keep talking with you, but we're going to have to end it there.
0: Shara, this has been very fascinating. We're so glad to have been able to host this discussion with you. And we look forward to hearing more about your research in the future. We want to thank you for this time uh, on this Friday afternoon (laughs) at... At um, beer thirty, <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for taking time to to talk with us. Um, and it's been so fascinating. And until oh, well, next time.
1: Um, and until next time, um, we ask our listeners to stay inquisitive and to keep searching out the, the dirt, dirt on, on the,
0: the past. past. <laughs> You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out the dirt on the past.